Welcome to Trowadron Legends and Lore. Episode 29, Sidra and Shador. Well, hello and welcome back to Trowelden Legends and Lore. I am Chad Corey. I hope you're having a good time and you've been enjoying the new selection of offerings for the episodes we've been having for episode 3 here. As I mentioned in the previous episode, episode 28, we are going to be doing a transition now in the process here for Legends and Lore as far as what we're covering We've basically exhausted the Pantheon as far as it currently sits with all the gods and such. And now we're going to be moving into what might be considered, I guess you can say, cultic beliefs or other divinities who have or are trying to muscle their way into the overall Pantheon or make their own Pantheon, shall we say, to find worshippers and such outside of the common uh, Pantheon of gods. And because of that, what we're going to be doing is uh, a couple different things here for starting with this episode is I'm going to be bunching them together um, two at a time for episodes, primarily because some of the material I have is able to share, I should say, is not as extensive as it was for the gods, because obviously these kind of play a minor role in some aspects of the world setting and the greater cosmos is, uh, as a whole. And so that's, I don't want to have, you know, very short episodes for you guys and kind of not, not have it worth your time to plug in and listen. But also, some of these things will kind of, how do I say it, blend into or complement each other and trying to find pairings that are complementary and are going to be of an interest, maybe how they contrast each other or maybe how they share similar aspects or ideologies or things and, and making more or less a holistic or larger approach to what I'm presenting here, making it more cohesive and uh, make more sense, shall we say. So for this particular episode, I'm going to be starting with Sidra and Shador. Some of you who are reading the books, especially the Wizard King trilogy, may have remembered or actually recalled the encounter with Sidra in the book, especially towards the latter end of uh, book three, Triumph of the Wizard King, where we learn a little bit more about her background and kind of what she did to some extent. I'm going to be expanding upon that in general in this podcast obviously as a caveat here for all these podcasts this one in particular is i will not be able to share every single detail and nuanced uh, piece of information about these individual uh, deities characters divinities what have you simply because i have plans and i'm working on various aspects of stories and such with these characters in them and i'd rather not spoil those stories or give some stuff away that doesn't necessarily need to be given away before those stories see publication or readers' interest or mind, shall we say. So I'll be able to share, like I said, what I'm, what I'm permitted to share with basic information and presentation. But again, it will be helpful, it will be insightful, and I'll do my best to make sure it's all inclusive as far as giving you the fullest picture possible for the individual deities and creatures. That said, too, if there are any questions that come up in these next few episodes... If things you want to learn more about, things maybe you thought I didn't do a good enough job on explaining, or you want to have some questions on other things related to the world setting, Charlton, uh, the podcast, things of that nature, do feel free to share me uh, your thoughts and comments at an email at lore, that's L-O-R-E, at Chad Corey, that's C-H-A-D-C-O-R-R-I-E 
www.thegreatdoctorbrian.com. And I'll do my best to respond and get comments. If I get a lot of repeat comments or commentary on certain things, then obviously I'll see if I can address that topic or, or look into that as far as maybe improving or adding some things to the episodes that follow. Also, if there's enough questions and things that pop up, I'll see about putting together a Q&A session here for an episode and see if I can answer some of those things for people in general. Otherwise, too, it'd be interesting for me as the person on the other side of the microphone here to see where you are listening to this, where you're getting access to it, how you're getting access to it. That would help me greatly in figuring out future emphasis for where to push things more and where to advertise things more if possible, and just generally where this is falling and reaching uh, overall. It's kind of interesting to see who who you are and where you're, where you're getting this and what you might be thinking of it in general. And with that being said, let's move right into Sidra. Now, Sidra is a unique case in that she is the first godspawn of the cosmos. And a godspawn basically comes in two different flavors. You have the greater godspawn and then the lesser godspawn. The greater godspawn, they're born from a god and divinity and are known as greater godspawn usually. Uh, they're very kind of rare because of the unique nature of how they're created. You can kind of think of them as, I guess Godspawn in general is more or less like demigods, if that makes sense, if you want to use like a comparative sense of traditional mythology. But basically a divinity, if you remember back from previous episodes of season one and such, divinity are going to be your, I guess you can say, titan lords. And, you know, gods obviously are higher forms of divinity, but titan lords are basically the extent of it, or maybe some special things that are, are added into or risen to those ranks. So anything after that, anything under that, as far as power level or, or aspect goes, would be creating lesser god spawns. So, for example, if you have a god plus a divinity, that equals a greater god spawn. But anything else after that, like a god versus a non-divinity, or a greater god spawn versus a you know, plus a lesser god spawn, lesser plus lesser, greater plus greater god spawn, that's all going to equal a lesser god spawn. Now, because Sidra had a common titan mother, not a, a titan lord, she had her father obviously being Girthgal, she was a lesser god spawn, and, and still is. Many people think of her as being deceased. She is mentioned in the Theogonon a little bit, I think, in the Cosma. But usually it's mentioned that she is deceased or no longer in the, in the cosmos. That's not entirely true, as we'll find out in just a moment here. Her physical body is, but her spirit, like most things in the uh, larger scope, scope of things, still exists and is imprisoned at the present time. But who is she? As we mentioned to before, she is the daughter of Girthgal, which puts her into the relationship of uh, being a cousin to Perloza, Remanas, Sheril, Priscilla and Andarian. Again, it's assumed she is a deceased deity, but you know we'll get to that in just a second. She's not necessarily the case. Unique thing I'll share real quicker is that she, her mother's name is Marona. We don't really talk about her. We don't really know much about her. Girthgal had a harem of women. He didn't really like the traditional sense of monogamy or, or commitment, shall we say. And so he had a, a harem of women, one of which was named uh, Marona. And she was the mother of Sidra. And obviously, he that's his only daughter as far as we know, as far as the information, the texts and such go. And he loved her very much and treated her very well. She had the unique distinction, though, Sidra being the case, of not being really that involved in the overall pantheon in, the, in general. Again, she was rather young when she was uh, killed. 
and removed from the Pantheon, and so she didn't have a lot of time to really establish herself necessarily as her other uh, cousins and such and aunts and uncles were able to do so, which allowed her kind of a disadvantage as far as being known or connected with things in her religion overall. But in general, she was really fascinated by the aspect of the void. Now, if you don't know what the void is, go back and listen to the previous episodes in season one. We talked about different planes and realities and cosmic elements and such like that. But in a nutshell, if you think of the cosmos as being this great globe floating in the sea of nothingness, that nothingness is the void. If you can imagine a place that doesn't have anything in it, not even anything intangible like thought or spirit or the concepts of reality, and it's, there's nothing. It's the absolute absence of, of everything. That is what she was fascinated by. Unfortunately, she was not able to really delve into a great aspect of studying it because you, it's a very toxic and destructive environment. It just destroys and just evaporates everything that tries to get into it and stays in it for any period of time. So she was finding herself in this very challenging situation. You know, she wanted to study it and get into it. She really was being, being enamored by it, even some say maybe too fascinated by it to a healthy, unhealthy level, but she wasn't able to, to study it directly for any long period of time. So she found herself turning to the next best option, which was Null, who in many ways was the embodiment of, of the void, although it was separate and unique from the void because it had existence. And obviously existence is the antithesis of the void, but anyway, that was what Null represented and what she wanted to get access to. And so she found herself going and serving Null, trying to learn more aspects of annihilation, the total disillusionment of things, and just trying to get as much as she could about Null and even envelop and develop that into her, her personality and being. Part of that was calling for her service to, you know, there were certain things that she had to do and petition and, and get access to that information. And so that is what she had her, had to do. It ended up she had to do take on a task for Null at some point in time, which was the destruction of her family, basically, her pantheon, and ultimately as well, Thangaria. So that is what brought her into conflict with her family and ultimately would lead to her demise. And for those who are familiar with the history of the, of the world or there were aspects of it we mentioned in the third book of the Wizard King trilogy, so I'll just share that she was able to go and begin the slaughter of her family, and she initially was fairly successful, killing a bunch of her family members, and even killing Null and uh, not excuse me, killing Vakar and Zora, and in the process brought about the destruction of Thangaria. And she actually was rather happy about that because she knew once Vakar left the throne and began to see that everything shaking and being destroyed, she realized that she was had the potential to bring about. The ultimate destruction of the cosmos, which just thrilled her to no, to no end because she realized, hey, I'm going to accomplish what I've always wanted to do and finally experience and see the full potential of the void take over everything. So that was a great, great accomplishment in her mind. Unfortunately, she didn't get to see that because her father was able to kill her and, well, the car is able to kill her too, but anyway, she died and her father, just so enraged by the whole process, after he took the throne of a car and stabilized the, the cosmos, basically sent her spirit to the very center of the abyss, thinking that that was the ultimate punishment he could render outside of totally destroying her. I guess maybe on one hand, because if he ultimately destroyed her, he knew that he knew that, that would basically be fulfilling her wish fulfillment there and bringing her into agreement with the void. 
So we've cursed her, I guess you can say, to eternal existence in this very heart of the abyss. And basically, after that, everyone kind of forgot that she she existed. And obviously, he didn't. Girth called paint him very much. That his, his only daughter, his only child, was so warped as he saw it and corrupted by he blamed Null uh, on the ideology and stuff that she had to the point that she was willing to kill her own family to get more access to that corrupting influence and desire in her life. And so he always blamed Null, and he always blamed, I guess part of him blamed himself too, as you realize in book three of the Wizard King trilogy, Triumph of the Wizard King. And I'm not going to share a whole lot more on that because there's some more elements that will play out with that. But she has been there ever since. Ultimately, if you understand how the Abyss works, she doesn't really have access to anything outside of it. And being in the very heart of it, there's there's three levels in the Abyss, as you might remember from, again, previous episodes. She is in the very greatest depths of it, which not many people have ever reached yet. And so she's entirely cut off. She's entirely imprisoned there. She doesn't really have a hand or an aspect or availability to anything outside of that reality. And so she doesn't know anything about Trollodon, doesn't know anything about the greater cosmos. And so she's very much isolated and uh, kind of stuck there. I guess you can say kind of tortured with that isolation and imprisonment as she's been there all these, these centuries. That being the case, there's no one really on the, the greater cosmic level that has a desire to worship her or to take access and, and find access and access her. There are some things that were trying to be done that try to get access to her. And again, I'm not going to share so much about that because that's actually a whole little short story that will be coming out hopefully in the not too distant future, depending upon when you get this uh, podcast. But it explains more about some elements tied into that. But let's just kind of talk a little bit about what she looks like or how she's portrayed by people in general. Normally when people portray her, I mean when she was originally portrayed or just used as, as an example in texts and things, even in modern times, people put her in a, in a book. They do so in a cautionary tale sort of way, basically saying, don't be Sidra, don't be like this person, and, and risking, you know, destroy things and do things. But when she's portrayed in that sense, she has usually been seen seated on a throne with a sword across her lap, sometimes a skull in her hand. She always seems to be a lovely young woman with white serpentine curls and pure black eyes, and she's often dressed in either a long flowing gown or a or piecemeal armor. And again, it's usually not in a... There's kind of the, the, the compromise or the juxtaposition where she's portrayed as a very, you know, slightly enticing, attractive young woman, but on the other hand, she's also having these elements that are like warning signs or, or repulsion kind of things, saying, don't do this, don't be her, don't, you know, don't give in to this kind of thing. So kind of that, that twofold thing, there's a temptation there, but also a warning, don't do what she did. But in general, what she looked like in, in before she was killed was she was about 14 feet tall. She had shoulder-length white hair, charcoal gray eyes, and she has pale porcelain skin. And as we said, she's the, the first god spawn, but not the last in the cosmos. And she is still around, like I said, but I'm not going to share about what she's doing now necessarily. Just suffice it to say, she doesn't have any influence necessarily by those people on Trollodon who might be looking at cults or other things in general. But there is an interest, maybe esoteric as far as maybe she's an inspiration to some people. Or like I said, an example of what not to do or for some people maybe what to do if they want to get into the void or total annihilation 
philosophy or things like that. Okay, and the next person we're talking about here is Shador. Now, Shador is a little bit different in that he's not a god, he's not a god spawn, he's actually just a divinity. And he has been able to find access into Trollodon and been able to establish a cult for his own purposes and desires. In general, he's a lord of darkness, but he's also a viceroy and regent of Alteran. Uh, what happened is, I'm not gonna, I guess I can share this, he moves and makes some machination, shall we say, to become ruler of uh, Girthgal's realm and Alteran after his uh, departure at the end of Book 3 of the Wizard King trilogy. So he is kind of looking to get power on a couple different levels. He wants it on the cosmic level by becoming the, the regent of, of the realm, but he also still wants to get kind of involved, or he sneakily, once in a while, taps into Trollodon for his, his cultic activities. What he uses the cult for, generally, is to get access to the items that he couldn't necessarily get on his own. These might be enchanted items or historical things or documents and information that, again, if he went there on his own and tried to do things with the guys and such, it might be understood or known by the gods, and he doesn't want to do that. Whereas if he has people do the things for him, he can do so kind of under the radar and get information and such, and kind of have a basically like a spy network or an influence or awareness campaign he can run to generate more power and, and uh, access and ability and just generally have more influence in a in a secret covert type of way in general, besides, besides being there in himself in, in the physical guise. He is like a Lord of Darkness. He's 15 feet tall. He has deep violet eyes. He has black hair. And his skin tone, like a lot of the, the Lords of Darkness, is, is kind of a dusty grayish purple. And the weird thing about it is it gets darker in, in shadow, and it gets a little bit lighter, more grayer color in the light. And uh, he can actually get his skin tone even down to like almost a pure black in shadow and darkness because he is a, a Lord of Darkness. But basically, he, like I said, he is a... And Lord of Darkness, his followers have uh, come and gone throughout the years. He, he hasn't really had much of a of a large following until recent time. In fact, we introduce you to the cult in, I believe it's book two of the Wizard King trilogy. But in general, he just typically likes to have them in larger cities. He just likes to have little cell groups and stuff established so he can kind of keep himself in the know of what's going on and also provide him that access point, like I said, to connect with maybe ancient relics, artifacts, things of that nature, information, or control and, and have aspects of influence and various things he might have an interest in. But also it's a way to kind of keep tabs on the gods and their religion and kind of sow some division and, and issues within their religions and followings as well. His holy text, if he has any, there isn't really any body of holy text. They just are told whatever, <laughs> whatever appeals to them, whether it might be secret hidden knowledge, or esoteric wisdom or things, whatever. Again, it varies based upon what the groups are uh, established for and what he's trying to promote and, and get them access to. There's no real holy symbol or sacred sign with them, like most cults you're going to find out. So there's nothing that can kind of tie him to it even more, which is probably a good thing for him. There is no real priestly vestments or anything they have to wear. They're basically ending up wearing black cloak robe, and that's the the extent of it. And usually the hood is always pulled up because it's 
meant to provide a sense of, oh, we're a secret club kind of thing. So there's this element of mystery things going on, but also it keeps the leaders and the people in the cult hidden from each other. So if anything does happen, they're not going to be able to squeal and reveal anything with each other. There's no important holidays or anything. There's nothing really, in the sense, there's no real great connection in, in the sense of a religion. It's kind of a very loose, if anything, form of religion, if that, if anything. And that's the, you know, that's what keeps it kind of hidden and connected as well. It's more, it's like I said, more an organization bent on trying to find whatever, you know, they, they get secret information, they believe, but they're more or less an information or a spy network established by Shador for his purposes. So again, he doesn't have, a, it just, the, the size of the group and the area of influence that they have does vary over time. Like for instance, if you're looking at the modern timeline as the point of this recording, there is no longer a cult on, on Trollodon has been destroyed. doesn't mean there might not be another one in the future or that there was some in the past. It just, that's kind of where we are. Like most cultures find out, as I share more in these episodes, they wax and wane, they, they, they exist, and then they're found out and destroyed, and they kind of combine and coagulate, <laughs> combine, shall we say, together, and exist for a while. And usually there's something that develops that brings the, the, the law down on them or other gods come down and destroy them, basically, and they disappear for a while again. So it's kind of this ebb and flow, this cycle of how they exist. And right now, if the current recording, current recording of this podcast, the current timeline for Trollodon, there is no no cult for Shador. Doesn't mean he won't try again. It just means he's kind of right now focused on some other things in general. So I guess that's where we're going to end this particular episode. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Uh, again, we'll be talking more double time for next episode, getting more into what is going on out there and seeing how we go uh, with the future episodes. But again, comments, commentary, lore at chadcorey.com. Otherwise, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next episode. This podcast is copyright Chad Corey. All rights reserved.